This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Every year, approximately 2.7 million babies die, and 99% of them die in low and moderate income countries. What the WHO recommends is skin-to-skin -skin care, or kangaroo mother care. We were able to make the warmer. It works using a phase change material that goes from liquid to solid at exactly skin temperature. Welcome to the Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum on Global Health. I'm Judy Palfrey, the Director of the Global Pediatrics Program in the Department of Medicine at the Boston Children's Hospital. Today we are bringing you another program in our series on common global health topics. We'll be focusing today on newborn health. We'll be looking at why there are so many deaths that still occur in low resource settings despite the fact that we know how to prevent them. Our expert today is Dr. Ann Hansen. Dr. Hansen is Associate in Medicine and the Medical Director of the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at Boston Children's Hospital. She's also Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the Harvard Medical School. Ann, we're so glad to have you here with us today. Thank you, I'm happy to be here. You've been working for many years to improve infant survival in low resource settings. Tell us about the scope of the problem. Um, unfortunately, the size of the problem is really enormous. Every year, approximately 2.7 million babies die, and 99% of them die in low and moderate income countries. 2.7 million is one of those mind-numbing statistics, but if you break that down, that's about five deaths every minute. Of these 2.7 million, 1 million die in their first day of life. So thinking about the first day of someone's life as being the most dangerous is really a call to action for a neonatologist. Yeah, it certainly is, and we've made so much progress with child health, but we don't seem to be cutting into this problem in, in the same way. What are the biggest contributors to these newborn deaths? Why are they happening? Well, 80% of the deaths are actually caused by just three preventable medical conditions. One of them is conditions related to the birth, usually asphyxia. Another is infection, and the third is deaths as a complication of prematurity. It's actually estimated that increased care of the preterm or low birth weight infant could prevent about a third of those 2.7 million, or roughly a million deaths. So what are the interventions that you know, have proved to be effective? I know you've been very, very involved with these. So there's actually a host of proven interventions that are low cost and quite effective. It's been estimated actually that if we could bring to bear proven low cost interventions, we could save about two thirds of those 2.7 million babies. And um, we would need to address a lack of access to basic equipment and medications, poor skills of birth attendants, and insufficient numbers of trained caregivers. Practical competency-based training for providers can help address these barriers to optimal care and child survival. So you and your colleagues have been working extensively in Rwanda. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Sure. So Rwanda is a country in East Africa, 
and it has a population of about 10.5 million. And in the population, approximately 80% live on less than $2 a day. Um, universal access to affordable health services of the highest attainable quality is a top governmental priority. Um, because of this priority of the government, they've been able to really reduce a lot of their pediatric mortality rates. Between 1990 and 2015, their infant mortality rate fell 32%, and during that time, their neonatal mortality rate fell 42%. So from 41 per 1,000 live births to 19 per 1,000 live births. But just to put that in perspective, in higher-income countries, um, like the United States, the rate that we have is about three per thousand live births. So we got involved in Rwanda because of an invitation through Partners in Health. Um, Partners in Health was actually invited by the Rwanda Ministry of Health back in 2005 to work together in collaboration to improve healthcare delivery. Um, both the Ministry of Health of Rwanda and also Partners in Health are deeply committed to improving maternal and child health and they had recognized that in the continuum of care, from obstetrics to pediatrics, that newborn care was a weak link. And so they asked myself and a nurse, who's our clinical nurse specialist in the NICU, if we could possibly come to Rwanda and help them bridge the knowledge gap to provide improved care for their newborns. We'd like to turn to the audience now and ask a question. When you reply, please first leave your city and country location. The question is this. In your setting, what are the interventions that you're using to lower neonatal mortality rate? How are you addressing birth conditions, infections, and prematurity? So when Michelle and I were trying to understand what we might be able to do to help Partners in Health and the Rwanda Ministry of Health, we referred to some building blocks that the World Health Organization has put together to put into categories some of the um, options for improving newborn care. And so we looked at these building blocks and we thought that the areas of service delivery, health workforce, and information were areas that we would be the most um, in a position to offer benefit. So one of the big contributions you've made, your team has made, is the design of protocols for the newborn care. We'd love to hear about how you did this. Many aspects of medical care vary widely by location, but one of the nice things about newborn care is that the basic care can actually be quite standardized. So what we did was we drafted a protocol of newborn care that was based on what we would call a level two or special care nursery in the United States. Our goal was to provide effective, low-technology newborn health care in a standardized fashion to help the medical team to provide timely, consistent, appropriate care to sick newborns. So we brought what we had developed in the United States as this special care nursery or level two guideline, and then what our expectation was to adapt that to conditions in a provincial hospital in Rwanda. We were working in a hospital called Rinkwavu, which is one of Partners in Health Associated Hospitals, which is in a rural area in Rwanda. And what we did was um, each week we would pick one body system and teach in the morning lectures about that body system. And then we would go to the wards and round with the team with a particular focus on that body system. Then in the afternoons, we would take the protocols that we had written and adapt them based on our experience with the teaching and rounding in the morning. And we also made ourselves available for consultation throughout the day and even the evening. 
And um, we assessed and revised all the material based on user input while we were teaching and providing clinical care. So you were getting a lot of input about the area and the people. And, and we would take things that we would never have anticipated and add them into the protocol as they came up over the course of the time that we were there. So you, you were obviously able to do this in Kwabu and understand that culture and, and what was going on there. But how did you bring this to scale? By the end of our summer working there, we had a newborn medicine package that encompassed everything that we had been working on throughout the summer. That package included a protocol of standardized care practices with um, some summarized reference tools. There was also a medical record form that doubled as an order set that could be used to provide efficient, systematic newborn care. There were a series of teaching materials that were organized into modules, each that came with a pretest and a post-test and some case scenarios, and finally a set of quality indicators that we used to assess ongoing compliance and effectiveness. So one of the great things about working with both Partners in Health and the Rwanda Ministry of Health is that they are very interested in bringing things to scale. So at the end of all of this work, we all thought that it would be wonderful if this could be used in more hospitals than, the, than just those associated with Partners in Health. We'd like to turn to the audience now and ask a question. When you reply, please first leave your city and country location. The question is this. In your country, do you have a standard guideline for neonatal health care delivery? What barriers do you encounter in trying to implement that standard? We presented the material to the Rwanda Pediatric Association, and they helped adopt it to a format that they all agreed upon, and then it was accepted as the national standards for newborn care. Well, congratulations, because that is a major. Thank you. We were so excited and really pleased. I know you've done uh, some other work with things like CPAP and uh, had protocols created for that. Yes, yeah, so when we came back, we decided that since we had now had these protocols accepted as their national standards, that our own commitment to working in Rwanda was going to be more long-term than we might have thought when we got started. Um, so the next thing that we really wanted to do was to bring CPAP to the hospitals that we were working on and potentially to the whole country. So we developed a CPAP protocol as well as teaching and training materials and brought CPAP machines and um, did some trainings throughout the country and then we also realized that the first edition of the national protocols that we had made needed to have a second edition, both to include the CPAP and also to account for the fact that there were now both smaller and sicker babies who were surviving. And so we needed to add some materials into the national protocols to accommodate for that. Now, would you still consider this um, a secondary level nursery or had you bumped it up? No, these were still provincial secondary level nurseries. So there's the clinic, the provincial hospitals, and then the referral hospitals that are in mostly Kigali. So we published the second version of the national protocols in 2014. And this time we really wanted to be able to provide a national training on the protocols rather than just have um, the protocols issued as books to people because we felt like a huge amount of the value of the protocols was the training. So we were able to do a national training in which we invited one doctor and one nurse from each of the provincial hospitals, and we uh, went and trained everybody on the use of these protocols. Um, in addition to the actual material in the protocols, we taught some quality improvement approaches. We taught some courses on communication skills, including crisis resource management and delivering difficult news. And we also taught some principles of adult education with the goal to improve the skills of the folks who we were training as educators. So your team was the, the team to the whole country. 
About how much time did all of this work take? Um, well, the trainings, we broke out into two sessions, and so we had half of the doctors and nurses uh, come in one one-week session, and then the other half come in another one-week session, and we were able to get through all of this material in one week. But everybody was working very hard very to get hard. that done, yes. So to tell you a little bit more about the national trainings, we did a lot of role play and case studies and small group activities that were integrated throughout the training. We did breakout sessions to practice skills, including procedures and kangaroo mother care. We also rounded on the neonatal wards at our host hospital to demonstrate some of the key points from the protocol. And then we concluded with individual nurses and doctors planning how they would implement this at their local hospitals. And this is all the more remarkable in that this is not that long after a major civil war with loss of doctors and very little infrastructure and, and all of this you were able to add in as the country was coming back to its normal state. And our impression is that people were just so eager to learn this material and people, we just felt that we really had people's attention and enthusiasm. In fact, um, we really wanted everybody to be able to uh, take a pretest and post-test to demonstrate that they had learned this information. And so um, we offered a pretest and a post-test, and our scores went from 65% to 91%. We had had a 75% set as the uh, target for passing, and we were able to get everybody over that benchmark to be able to certify all of our participants. And I understand you've done some work with open pediatrics. Yes. So when we got done with that training, everybody was very excited and very enthusiastic to go back to their local hospitals and train their own staff. We'd like to turn to the audience now and ask you a question. In your setting, how were you involved in the training and expansion of your neonatal workforce? One of the things that we found is a major challenge in this line of work is turnover, staff turnover. And so um, we realized that the doctors and nurses who we had trained actually weren't able to stay in their local hospitals for long enough to remain champions for this cause. And so rather than trying to um, be able to pull off a national training every year or every other year, we thought that this would be a perfect role for open pediatrics. So last summer we went and um, we took all of the national training material that we had already developed um, and we turned it into 12 open pediatric videos that will be available for global use. We th think that the folks in Rwanda will find it the most relevant, but as I said earlier, this is really applicable to newborns anywhere in the world. So we filmed um, lectures in Rwanda. We have a beautiful opening by the Rwanda Minister of Health herself. And then each of the 12 chapters has a doctor, a nurse, or both who are Rwandan who are giving the lectures. Now, I understand you're piloting a very interesting intervention for newborns. It's a simple newborn warmer. And we'd love to learn about this project. But also, why in the world do you need a warmer? So it may surprise people that even in sub-Saharan Africa, where it, to us it feels very warm, babies have significant morbidity and mortality from hypothermia. Low birth weight babies have a much higher surface area to body mass ratio than older children or grown-ups. They also have a limited ability to um, engage in vasoconstriction to prevent heat loss. They have less brown fat, which is critical for non-shivering thermoregulation. And also some practices like early bathing can enable them to get quite cold. So um, 
though it is surprising to many people, hypothermia is a major cause of morbidity and mortality, even in quite warm countries. But you're doing something about it. Tell us what you're doing. Yes. So um, thermoregulation is critical in the care of all newborns, and especially those who are born preterm, low birth weight, or ill. And the ability to recognize and treat neonatal hypothermia is estimated to avert up to 40% of neonatal deaths, really a shocking number. Um, beyond survival, providing adequate warmth decreases metabolic demand and promotes nutrition and weight gain, which are all critical for normal neural development. The current options are quite limited. Um, what the WHO recommends is skin-to-skin -skin care, or people call that kangaroo mother care. Kangaroo mother care is fantastic, and everybody is trying to implement it and teach it and train it and do it, but it does have a couple of limitations. When babies are very small, sometimes kangaroo mother care does not provide enough heat transfer to keep a small newborn baby warm, and so that baby needs additional heat. If a mother um, has twins or higher order multiples, it becomes increasingly unfeasible for her to keep all of her babies warm just with her own body. Um, if the mother tragically dies during childbirth, or if she is ill or the infant is ill after birth, the positioning for kangaroo mother care can be quite difficult to take care of either the mother or the newborn. And finally, mothers need to attend to other activities such as bathing or cooking over a hot fire or taking care of their other children. So it can be very difficult for them to do kangaroo mother care 24 hours a day, seven days a week for what can actually be months before their baby is large enough to be able to maintain their heat without uh, external heat source. So you've come up with a alternative. Yes. Well, I should also tell you that when I was in Rwanda, one of the things that we really struggled with was teaching the use of warming tables and um, incubators. So both of those pieces of equipment are very expensive. They require a constant source of electricity. They're actually quite difficult to use accurately, and they can cause hypothermia and hyperthermia, both of which are really unhealthy. They're very difficult to clean, and so we worry about causing um, iatrogenic infection related to poor infection control. And also when they break, they can be extremely difficult to fix, and we often saw them just turning into very expensive coffee tables. The other thing that people use is just makeshift solutions, which we resorted to often. Uh, the most common thing is to take a hot water bottle or medical gloves and fill them with hot water, and this can cause really terrible burns, because even when the water feels not at all warm to us, it can cause burns when directly in contact with preterm baby skin. Um, so what we decided to do was to see if we could make a non-electric infant warmer that would be inexpensive, easy to use, easy to clean, and intuitive that would not require an enormous amount of training to use correctly. We wanted to make sure that it could be used many times. Our goal currently is to have it be used close to a thousand times so that the cost becomes essentially free. Um, and we were hoping that it could be uh, simple enough to be manufactured locally to potentially drive um, economic advantages in a local population. So we decided that we wanted to design an infant warmer that would address the needs of the population that we were working within. So we partnered with Lawrence Berkeley Lab, and we worked with them with the goals to create an infant warmer that did not require a constant electricity source, that would mimic skin-to-skin -skin care, 
that would uh, have hot water as a heat source that could last approximately six hours, that could be used hundreds of times, that would be safe, not cause any burns, that would be easy to use and clean, and have the potential for local manufacturing. We thought that this could be used as an alternative to kangaroo mother care when the mother was not available, that it could be used in addition to kangaroo mother care when she was not able to provide enough heat on her own, that it could be used during neonatal resuscitation instead of laying a baby on a cold table, that it could be used on transport when babies need to be brought from a clinic to a provincial hospital or a provincial hospital to a major referral hospital, and that it could even potentially be used for babies when they uh, were going home uh, in Rwanda or in some countries that have home births that it could be used by midwives in the home setting. So tell us a little bit about how you're studying this. So we were able to make the warmer. It's modeled after a heating pad, and um, it works by using a phase change material that goes from liquid to solid at exactly skin temperature. So essentially, it is skin to skin, but it can be used without the mother necessarily having to be there, or as I said, as an additional amount of heat source to complement kangaroo mother care. We were very excited to be able to assess the infant warmer's performance in the hospital and health center setting in rural Rwanda. We conducted a two-phase pilot study with 102 uses in the rural district hospital setting and another 102 uses in the rural health center setting. Eligibility for participating in the pilot study was either hypothermia or risk of hypothermia on the basis of being low birth weight or preterm. And from what you said before, it doesn't sound like it would take very long to get a sample since there are no. so many uh, babies that are cold. You're correct. And we had mothers lining up to be in the study because they were so excited to be able to have a chance, actually, to be sure that their babies would be safe and warm while they went to attend to some of the other things that they obviously needed to take care of. We assessed safety by looking at incidents of hyperthermia, as well as other adverse events such as rashes or burns. Of our 204 uses, only seven patients experienced hyperthermia. And of note, five of those patients, the temperature was only 37.6 degrees, so just a little bit over what we would consider to be a normal temperature range. This is a vast improvement over the rates of hyperthermia that we saw with use of electric warmers such as incubators and warming tables. We had no instances of other adverse events such as rashes or burns. In terms of effectiveness, of our 120 uses that were enrolled on the basis of hypothermia, 98% of those patients reached euthermia, 91% reached that temperature in two hours, and 77% had our goal rate of temperature rise of at least one half of a degree centigrade per hour. Of our 59 infants who were enrolled on the basis of being at risk for hypothermia because they were low birth weight or preterm, 100% of them maintained euthermia when they were placed on the infant warmer as a sole source of external heat. We'd like to turn to the audience now and ask a question. How do you address thermal stability for newborns in your setting? We were also interested in the usability of the warmer and did audits of the nurses in their preparation, use, and cleaning of the warmer 
and found that in all 204 uses, the nurses prepared, used, and cleaned the warmer appropriately. Finally, we were very interested in the user experience of the warmer in terms of both the nurses and the caregivers, and therefore we conducted a semi-structured qualitative interview of nurses and caregivers who had used the warmer, and we received overwhelmingly positive responses regarding the role of the warmer, both to complement skin-to-skin and as a standalone heat source for infants in rural Rwanda. Is there any chance we could see one of these warmers? I did bring a warmer, and I would be happy to prepare it and show everybody how it works. So now I'm going to demonstrate how to use the infant warmer. So this is the thermos. Take the top off. And then you prepare 1.7 liters of boiling water. And this can be prepared with a standard tea kettle if you have electricity. And otherwise, any way that a human society boils water with coal or wood or however is perfectly fine. And you pour the 1.7 liters into the thermos just to this fill line, which you can see here. Then you take the infant warmer. And this is the phase change material, which is in the solid phase right now. So it is white and it is hard. Roll the warmer up and add it to the boiling water and put the top on. Then you wait approximately half an hour for the phase chains wax to melt. After half an hour, take the top off and the mattress wax will be melted. And you can tell that it's melted because the phase change material is now liquid and it's clear and it's soft. You dry it off with a towel. And you slide it inside this insulating pad. And you wanna make it so that this little color indicator here is visible in this little cutout. The color indicator has three zones, a too hot frowny face zone, a just perfect smiley face zone, and a too cold frowny face zone. And it takes approximately five minutes to 10 minutes for the warmer to cool down to the just right smiley face zone. Even before it cools down though, it's not very hot because the heat from the boiling water has all been transferred to the wax, so it's never uncomfortably hot. Then you take your baby, and you put on a hat. And if you have socks, that's good to do too. But otherwise, the baby should be naked on the warmer to maximize the heat transfer. You want to have the baby's head up so that you can see the color indicator and you don't have to keep undoing the blanket to look at the color indicator. And then you put a blanket over the baby and wrap it around so that it's properly insulated. And then the warmer will stay warm for approximately six hours. And as the warmer starts to be cool, you can tell because this clear wax, again, will start to be a little bit white and firm, 
and the color indicator will fall into the lower cold smiley face zone. And that's how it works. So all of this experience is happening for you while at the same time you're working at Boston Children's Hospital. Any comparisons or things that you think about as you look at those two experiences? Yeah, that's such an interesting question, and it's something I think about all the time. When I'm working in the NICU at Boston Children's Hospital, in the very rare and sad event that a baby dies, it's because of a catastrophic medical condition, whether it's profound prematurity or a congenital anomaly that's so serious it's not compatible with survival or a devastating brain injury. When I'm working with a family of one of these babies, I can look them in the eye and explain with confidence that today there's no place in the world that could save their baby. I realize this is a great luxury, but it's a good thing to be able to say, and it's a good thing to be able to hear. When I'm working in, with newborns in Rwanda, most of the deaths that I see are preventable, whether they're due to moderate prematurity, a relatively mild breathing problem, or a mild infection. Hypothermia is a contributing cause to many of these deaths. I want to scale this warmer globally because I don't want any healthcare provider to have to say to a family, your baby died because she got cold. Here's a picture of the first babies that we put on our warmer. These are twin boys. And here's a picture of these same babies 15 months later. With such small interventions, these babies can make it. They can survive. Dr. Hansen. You have done such wonderful work with the protocols that go throughout the country, that now maybe with Open Pediatrics we'll be working in other countries, and then to add this very wonderful intervention for a preventable cause of newborn death. Thank you so much for everything you do. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.